Welcome to episode 21 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are doing another installment in our writing mechanics series. We are going to be covering the topic of voice. Uh-huh. So Kelly and I did some discussing before we started recording about just what is voice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's hard to define. I feel like it's one of those things that you know it when you see it, and then extrapolating that out of, like, trying to describe what that is, is somehow impossible. It's like grasping at air. Yeah, I mean, the sort of definitions that we found weren't particularly useful, Um you know, because they're also vague and generic. And, and and I know a lot of writers have questions about how to develop a unique voice or how to do this or how to do that. Um, because that's, you know, when you're going on submission or when you're in the query trenches, you know, a lot of things that agents and editors say is that we're always looking for a great voice. But what does that mean? You know, how are you going to unpack that? Um, and as far as my experience goes when I was acquiring fiction, to me, a great voice was something that was distinct and memorable, uh, a distinct point of view that the character looked at, you know, viewed the world through, or maybe a very distinctive turn of phrase. Um, but again, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you see it, it was, mm-hmm. it would be so hard for me to kind of sit down and specifically say just what it is. Um, mm-hmm. But why don't we go through the, the quote dictionary definition of voice, Kelly? Do you have any a couple you can share? Sure. Yeah, I found a couple. Um, you know, looking online and at some various sources. Um, so one of the first ones I found was Grammar Girl, um, and Grammar Girl defines voice as the distinct personality, style, or point of view of a piece of writing or any other creative work. Um, so again, that word distinct, JJ used that word a moment ago when she was talking about voice. And I think that that will come up a lot, Mm -hmm. uh, personality style. Those are in there too. One of the other definitions that I found, let me try to pull it up. Um, this was from, uh, Nathan Bransford's blog. Um, he was, uh, he's a former literary agent, and he is also a published author now that uh, he has an ongoing series, I believe. And he, um, when he, I believe he started his blog when he was a literary agent and has continued it as he's an author. Um, it's a great resource if you're looking for things about writing or the industry. He defines voice in one of his blog posts as, at its most basic level, voice is the sensibility with which an author writes. Um you know, again, does that mean anything? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. he's not wrong. I would agree with that, but at the same time, it doesn't like have any real concrete meaning. I think that one way you can describe voice is that the voice in a piece of writing creates and evokes a certain feeling or style or aura about the book. It's something that the reader recognizes and connects with. You know, you can break it down and like word choice and sentence structure contribute to voice, but voice is larger than just those building blocks. It's the all the pieces of the writing as a whole as they weave together to create or evoke this certain magical spell work of <laughs> voice. I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't help you. Um, yeah, well, on my blog, I also attempted to tackle this topic before, um, of the topic of voice, and I drew the comparison that 
a writer's voice is like an individual's sense of style or sense of, you know, like fashion, you know, when some people who Uh have a very distinct sense of fashion or style or look, um, how is that cultivated? That's based purely on the individual's likes, dislikes, preferences, body type, personal aesthetic, what they're drawn to, all that sort of, you know, that's what comprises style. And in many ways, that's the same thing when it comes to a writer's voice. Mm-hmm. It is made up of the individual writer's influences, what they like, what they're, you know, what the tone they're going for, what mood they're going for, uh, their particular quirks, you know, all of that together culminates in some, that is a voice, a distinctive voice. Yeah. I think an analogy you can make too is to music. You can have the same composition played by different musicians or sung by different artists and it can be the exact same music on the page all the same notes and yet it will sound different when each individual artist plays it in their own way they lend their own artistic sensibilities and their own style and their own musical phrasing and such to the piece of music and so the music changes based on who is performing it. And I guess that you can kind of think about voice in that way. It's, it's that personal, individual and distinct aura <laughs> that a writer superimposes on their work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, yes. I mean... Before we kind of, because I feel like we're going around in circles with this definition. I mean, you know, it's like it's we are, it's we something are. special, blah blah blah, special sauce or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ultimately, a lot of you know we've mentioned this before, previously on podcasts, but the difference writing is a combination of two things, which is craft and art. So craft can be taught, art is innate to the writer. And voice falls along that art axis, you know, it it falls more to the art side because, you know, I don't know if any of you guys, either those like coloring books, obviously, you know, they've got coloring books. You could fill it in with whatever color you want. Some people take that and, you know, add shades or dimensions and, or, you know, color things in differently. It's, it's, it's that it falls into the, the art side of things. So now we can go and, you know, we can spend the sort of first part talking about craft, talking about what is a good voice versus what is a bad voice, um, which really kind of comes down to the difference between good and bad prose. Uh But even then, there are plenty of examples where the actual sentence level of the writing is not great. Um, but there's something very compelling about the voice that, that guides you forward. So again, this is the mystical side of writing where the, where craft and art intersect it. You can't define that because that's different from book to book, reader to reader, writer to writer. Um, but let's, let's, let's focus on the craft side. So what do you think is the hallmark of just good, solid writing? Good, solid writing. Um, I think good writing has clarity, has good rhythm and, you know, varied sentence structure and pace, has interesting word choices. I always like when writers use interesting words, um, you know, which by that I don't mean, you know, go out and find a thesaurus and you know, replace every single word that you are writing with something more exotic or strange. That's not what I mean by that, but that if you think about how many different ways there are to say something, to communicate a simple action or a simple description, um, you know, maybe you don't always necessarily want to reach for the most common or, you know, I, I appreciate when authors um, have interesting words in their prose. I mean, I think those things are all required for me to have just sort of successful 
basic prose. I agree with you on clarity. I think clarity is the most important factor in good writing. And what do I mean by clarity? Clarity exists on two levels. Clarity exists on a sentence level where I can parse the sentence, as in, you know, the phrases Mm -hmm. follow in logical order. Um, I don't even mean that it needs to have perfect grammar, because we break grammar rules all the time in speech, as well as writing, um, often for artistic reasons or just because it sounds better to our ears. But I just mean clarity in that it just makes sense. The sentence Mm -hmm. makes sense, and you would not believe... How that is actually difficult for some people to achieve. Such a huge problem, really. Like where you get to the end of the sentence and you don't know who's doing the action or what or when or... Or my (laughs) favorites are like the kind of really long, complicated sentences where it's not even about comma placement. It's literally where I'm trying to figure out what phrases it is dependent on the other and why Mm -hmm. they're following upon each other and why this is a logical thought or a sentence. I've seen this a lot, uh, particularly in beginning writers uh, who are maybe trying to overreach themselves with a, quote, literary style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do see that frequently. But clarity, on that's the micro level of clarity for me. On a macro level, clarity just means I know what's going on. There are definitely times where I've read a book um, where there's like a big action sequence and I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Yep. (laughs) And writing action is difficult. I mean, I should know I'm very bad at writing action, but you know, it's how you're telling it, the order in which you're telling the events, who's doing what, um, who's suffering from what, who's been affected by what that's all, part of the macro level of clarity. So I have a very good understanding and picture of what's going on in your book. So that's what good writing is. I don't care if it's fancy. I don't care if Mm -hmm. it's literary. I don't even really care if it's spare. If I understand what's going on, I don't care. And sometimes I, I would, I used to say when I, cause I tend to fall a little bit more on the commercial side when it comes to reading preferences. I, often like writing to be invisible. Like I won't notice the writing. I'm so involved or caught up in the story itself mm-hmm. that I will not consider the writing unless it's good. Cause you can also be tripped up by writing when it's bad, but occasionally, you know, there's like a little gem or a turn of phrase that it's good and it sticks out, but it sticks out in a good way. But most of the time I, I don't, I like it when writing is invisible to me. And I think in terms of what to aim for, I think that's actually a good starting point to make your writing invisible. Yes. So once you've achieved invisibility in your writing, I think then we can start talking voice. Um, Now there are two, I think there are two types of voice. There's the voice of the book that you're Mm -hmm. writing. And there's also the voice of, of an author. And those are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, but for example, I would hesitate to, I would venture to say that those of you guys who've read John Green novels could probably pick out John Green's voice in Uh pretty much anything he's ever written. He has a pretty distinct voice. Now, this is just my opinion, but I actually don't think his books have distinct voices. I don't actually think that the voices in each of his individual novels sound all that different from each other. They have this sort of heightened sense of heightened philosophical way of speaking that personally doesn't always ring true in terms of the way I think teenagers speak these days, because I'm old, you guys, so who knows? Maybe they do speak like that, and I just don't know. Um <laughs> It doesn't necessarily ring true to reality, but it is emotionally true within the context of his work. So Uh that's an example of author's voice. Uh, On the other hand, you have 
well, well, let's see someone like Libba Bray, um, which I've more or less read everything Libba has written, and she has different modes of writing. She can do the kind of really beautiful, lush, creepy, historical, and these really kind of zany, surreal, funny, um, funny books. And yet they are both distinctly Libba as well, I think. Uh, there's something about the way the author views the world that comes through in all of her books, even though the individual voices of her books may be different. Mm-hmm. So voice can work on two levels like that. I think, I mean, Kelly, you've read a lot of my work and mm-hmm. I try and make each book distinct with its own voice. But I think throughout it all, you could probably also sense underneath the kind of voice of the book, my personal voice and what that is. Yeah, I would agree. I think another good example of this too is J.D. Salinger. Mm -hmm. I can always tell when J.D. Salinger has written a book, but I do think that they all have... um, Catcher in the Rye has a very, very different tone than Franny and Zooey. It has a different voice. It's, It's got its own unique... Um, perspective, but it still has those hallmarks of being written by J.D. Salinger. I don't know if you guys ever wrote pastiches, because I did a lot (laughs) when I was young. (laughs) I was pretty good, and I still kind of am pretty good at writing parodies of other writers. Um, and what does that mean? And how do you write a parody of a writer? You're actually writing a parody of the voice. Uh, when I was young, when I was going through my Jane Austen phase, as many 14 year old girls, always Jane Austen. I was going to say Jane Austen was mine too. <laughs> yep. Yep. I definitely wrote a, a lot of kind of fake Regency novels, aping Jane Austen's style. Um, I don't necessarily mean I wrote Regency romances, although I did, and they were set in the Regency because all of her books were. I meant that that kind of arch tone that she often took with her books, that is what I imitated, not the actual Mm -hmm. content. Um, So that's kind of the first thing. Or uh, I did a lot of Tolkien. Uh, I also wrote Tolkien pastiches, um, kind of really... And I, like, sat down and worked out my own you know, made up language, that kind of a thing, you know, pastiches of someone's style, you know, like when you are younger, particularly, and you're trying to figure out your own unique sense of style. I mean this in the fashion sense, because I, I went through that where I would find somebody whose sense of style I admired, then I would kind of try it on and then keep elements that worked for me and discard elements that didn't work for me. Um, so, you know, the, the pastis thing is that's when, when you start to try and write parodies of another writer, that's when you start to pay attention to the voice of that writer. Yeah. Sometimes after I read Jane Austen, all my emails start sounding like Jane Austen. Yep. Like even, even not my fiction, just my everyday speech just becomes, I've, it's like I've absorbed it like a sponge and I just have to, you know, get through a couple, a couple of days of Jane Austen style speaking and writing. Yep. I, I've definitely done that. It's, um, it's like the, the literary equivalent of code switching. <laughs> you know, where you just kind of read something and then it influences the way you speak or the way you write. Mm-hmm. Definitely is, is the case for me. Um, so, so that's kind of, we kind of discovered or not discovered, we discussed the craft side of voice and what we think makes good writing. So the art side of voice, we've kind of been touching on this throughout, you know, here and there, and this is your sense of style and stuff. How do you make that distinct? It's probably the first question a lot of writers will ask. Like, how do I make my voice unique or different or stand out? Um, first of all, you should master the craft part of your prose first. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure you, can, you got clarity down on all levels of your prose. Yeah. 
And then beyond that, I actually think once you've achieved clarity in your prose is when your voice starts to come through. When you perfect, or not perfect, when you gain proficiency with writing on that level, and you've got kind of the bare bones of it, and you can work with it, that's when your own personality starts to come out. That's when your own spin comes out. That's when... It, and voice affects absolutely everything in a book, not just your cho- your turn of phrase, but how you open a sentence, how you decide to start a paragraph, how do you how you decide to end a chapter. These are all kind of distinct to the writer telling the story. Now, voice is probably the most easy to achieve in the first person. Mm-hmm. Yes, because. If you can hear the person telling the story to you, you're hearing their voice, essentially. Examples we can think of, Huck Finn, you know, a classic mm-hmm. example would be Huck Finn. Um, and of course, Mark Twain did write that with vernacular in written into the text. But, you know, it's a very distinct voice. It's of a distinct place and a distinct time, this distinct person. So first person, it's often easier to find a unique voice there. But I would argue that it can also be a trap. (laughs) Writing in first person may seem easy at first, but I actually argue it's, it's hard. Because you can fall into the trap of why is this person telling me this story? Uh Sometimes I do that. I, I mean, and I will admit, I do prefer third person. Uh, both reading and writing, I do prefer a third person because sometimes I often sit there and I'm reading a book and I'm like, why is this person telling the story to me? Like in the middle of the action, why is this person telling me a story? And that's because the writer hasn't done enough work to make it invisible to me. If mm-hmm. I'm questioning why or how a story is being told, the writing is not invisible. Um, and like normally I loathe like first person present as kind of a POV, but, but the hunger games are all written in first person present and it is absolutely the right POV to tell that story. So the artistic side of voice comes down to the choices that you are making on the page. I think it's probably the best way I can describe it. Um, I don't know, Kelly, you have any thoughts about, making something distinct or personal? I would agree that um, situations in which you're telling the story in first person are somewhat easier to have a voice or stories um, that have a distinct narrator telling the story Mm. where he's not telling his own story. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind in this moment is um, the series of unfortunate events. Yes. Where the narrator is Lemony Snicket, but he's not telling his own story. He's telling the story of the three bottle air orphans. Um, And those books have an incredibly distinct voice. Um, And that's another situation too, where even though it, that, it's not being told in first person, but the narrator is, in effect, a character in the story. When you move over to third person, um, it becomes... I don't even know that I want to say more difficult. It just becomes different because, you know, first person is a, a character's actual voice, as JJ said. You know, this is how that person speaks and thinks, and you have a, a complete character there, and so it's kind of, you have an easy entry point. Uh, you have a way to access that story. When you are telling a story in third person, it can become more complicated. And that is when I think... When you're telling a story in third person, I think it's really important to um, pay attention to the hallmarks of your genre, of the tone. You know, are you are you writing a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it an adventure story? Is it gothic? Is it 
historical? Is it, you know, all of those things that you, when, when you categorize your book in that way, or you find out, you know, what feelings you want to invoke in your audience? Do you want to make your audience afraid or excited or happy or any of those things? Weaving all of that stuff together can help lead you to a voice too sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I keep coming back to point of view because not necessarily the, the point of view you choose to tell the story in, whether it be first or third, or even heaven forbid you choose second. Um, <laughs> are there any books that are, I mean, I know there are, there must be, but like, can you think of a book in second person? Yes. It's called you. Oh, <laughs> I haven't read it. I mean, I don't actually necessarily mind the second person. There are, I think when used sparingly, I think the second person can in fact be very effective, but I don't necessarily think it's a, POV that's sustainable over an entire novel mm -hmm. for any just extended period of time. It is pretty hard to sustain as kind of a, a conceit, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, there are other books like David Levithan wrote a book called the lover's dictionary. And, but that's again, but that's structured like a quote dictionary, you know, it's structured with, you know, a, the avant garde, um, you know, that kind of a thing. And all the definitions are hilarious and poignant, I might add. But they're also all written in the second person because this dictionary is being written by somebody who's speaking to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So that in that regard, that works. Also, the lover's dictionary, like I said, dictionary form, and it's also pretty short. So you can get away with that. I The the second person, though, I, it to me, it's like... Who, who's talking to me? And why are you assuming that I've inserted myself into this narrative in this it's way? It's strangely intimate. It's strangely intimate. Yes. And I'm, yeah. I was just, it just reminded me as well of the choose your own adventure stories. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. The, yeah, the strange intimacy part is something that I think, I, I think I'm going to return to in a little bit. But so when I go back to the point of view, I mean, the entry point you're telling the story with the it's, it's a tone, but it's also how you approach the characters, whether or not you're approaching them or showing them in a slightly ridiculous light or in a sincere light, or if you're coming at the events kind of sideways, or if you're doing it dead on, that's kind of what I mean by point of view. For example, Sarah Reese Brennan, who, I love, I love all of her books. She has a very distinct, whimsical way of writing. And what do I mean by whimsy is that she, she kind of takes these tropes and kind of just tilts them a little bit here and there. She just tilts things. And that's her point of view. That's how, she, that's her entry to, that's her distinct voice, even though the voices of each of her books are actually quite different. Um, so that that's what I mean by point of view. It's easier to do that in first person for a lot of people because as you, as the writer, can insert yourself into your protagonist's head and then see the world that they're living in through their eyes. But if you're doing it as a third person, the way you and you as the writer are telling the story takes its own voice sort of separate from the the voice of the characters in it. How many times can we say voice in this, in this podcast? <laughs> Drink. Yeah, no, right. You, you guys will be so trashed if you play that drinking game. <laughs> um, but in particular, like here's a, here's another example, Harry Potter, mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily have such a distinct voice as lemony snicket, for example. Uh, cause lemony snicket is very much this kind of, really melancholy, just slightly creepy guy. That's, that's the persona, persona, that's the shtick of that voice. But Harry Potter as a series also has its own voice. The way JK Rowling ch chooses to tell the story is that kind of a slight remove from mm -hmm. her characters. And she very much in, in many ways, like Austin kind of, treats her characters 
like pokes fun a little bit at her characters from a distance. I mean, if you think about the opening lines from Harry Potter, which is, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. And just that sentence alone is very distinct, and it tells you exactly what tone the rest of this book is going to take. This juxtaposition of what you think is going to be normal and what, in fact, happens over the course of that book. So that's kind of how you approach voice if you're writing in the third person. I don't know, do you have any sort of favorite examples of voice and maybe we can try and break down what makes them so distinct for us? I do. I have two that I have kind of already mentioned, but I have them pulled up. Um, And one is, of course, Huck Finn. Um, So Huck Finn opens with... You don't know about me without you've read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. (laughs) That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth mainly. There was things which he stretched, but mainly he told the truth. (laughs) And then, you know, and it goes on and on and on um, in that, you know. And we talked, too, about earlier we mentioned the vernacular that uh, Mark Twain uses in that. But it's also, you know, Huck is talking very directly to the reader. He's very frank. He's very open. He's very succinct. You know, he's just kind of like, this is who I am and how you may have heard of me. And, you know, probably most of what you know is fine, but you know, there's some things that you probably don't know. Um, but it's very straightforward. You can tell that Huck is going to be a very straightforward character. I, there's so much about that too. The the rhythm I think is what sticks out in that opening mm-hmm. for me uh, the most. I mean, rhythm is actually I think a very integral part of writing, which seems a little bit funny to say when you when you're reading something. You know, it doesn't necessarily have an oral component, but writing language is still inextricably tied with sound for mm-hmm. most of us. So mm-hmm. when something has rhythm. It, even though you don't hear it necessarily, unless someone's reading it aloud to you, you notice it as you're reading it. Yeah. I think clunky prose more so than word choice or anything, any other part of the mechanics and craft of writing. I think, um, poor rhythm will rip me out of a book like nothing else. Um, I really think that the best practical piece of writing advice that every single writer can practice regardless of, you know, level of talent or how far along you are in your career is reading your own work out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, because especially when it's your own work and you've read it a million times, your eyes are just going to slide over things that a new reader looking at it for the first time when they hear that voice in their head or they pull those images up in their mind, there's going to be stumbling blocks if that rhythm isn't right. And the easiest way to catch it is to read out loud because when you're reading out it out loud, if something doesn't sound right or something's clunky, you'll stumble on it when you're reading. It won't come out right. Um, so that's, I mean, I think it's so important. It's one of the things that bothers me the most when I read yeah, rhythm is is a lot for a lot of people. It's subconscious, but it's definitely noticeable, especially when it's not varied. When your sentence structure is the same, you know, par- like sentence after sentence, paragraph after paragraph. That's when writing gets really dull. Mm-hmm. There's no variety to keep your interest, and that's and that the sort of dullness it calls attention to itself. It's not, again, as I say, invisible. When you know somebody who's really good at telling stories, and I don't necessarily mean like campfire stories or anything like that, but you know, you go to a you go to a restaurant or a bar or a coffee shop and you meet up with somebody who has an interesting life and just is able to tell you the story of what happened to their day in a really interesting and engaging way. Next time, pay attention to how they're doing it because how they're doing it is their voice. That's their voice. How they start, 
where they start their story, how the story unfolds for you. All of that are the small individual choices that that person is making on the fly as they are telling you that story. Um, and that's what makes it supremely, dis- that makes it unique to the individual. Um, and the best storytellers know how to, they know where to expand, they know where to skim, they know where to linger, they know how to kind of basically milk the tension out of the story that they're telling, even if it's something as mundane as getting lost on, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a different part of town. So those details that they're bringing into the story and then how they are parceling those details out, that's voice. That's a writer's voice. They have this information, they have the story that they're telling and how they are presenting that story to you. And that is everything from diction, word choice, as we'd mentioned before, because diction can be pretty important, especially if you are, for example, writing something historical, you know, you, the diction, you want that language to sound not too modern, um, not ridiculously old fashioned to the point of being incomprehensible to the modern reader. Um, and those are all small small choices in diction and where you are able to pick that up from is a lot of reading you just read you read a lot you read and when when you read a lot you start to pick apart what works and what isn't working for that particular book and for that particular writer so we did hook finn as far as examples go is there do you have another one or I can bring one out too. Yeah, you do one if you have one listed. I do have one other that I love, but um, okay. Well, this is actually the opening of Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, um, <laughs> which is a book I really, really love and is a huge influence. <laughs> it is a huge influence on me, voice wise, from my middle grade novel. Um, but this is the opening of Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, which is absolutely a pastiche. Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. <laughs> and it, I love this because it, it's, it starts out kind of mundane and then kind of sneaks in this funny, snide, slightly snarky observation about this group of gentlemen magicians. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a very distinct voice to this narrator. And the narrator does, as was the convention in 19th century novels, the narrator does speak to you. You know, infamously in Jane Eyre, of course, being narrated by Jane, but she says, reader, I married him. Uh, But there is a very distinct narrator of the Jonathan of Jonathan Norrell and Mr. Strange who occasionally inserts herself and she does claim herself to be a female narrator into the narrative um and that's to me I love everything about that that sort of distance that kind of portrait of a kind of a idyllic pastoral English setting and then skewering it just just a little bit I think the that that sort of juxtaposition that she does extremely well and the way she's crafted each of her sentences to kind of show that juxtaposition, I think really, really works. Um, of course, not everybody disagrees with me or not everybody agrees with me. I mean, this book is like a thousand pages long and some would disagree about whether or not she's able to sustain it for the whole novel. Uh, but I love it. I, this whole, I love this book a lot. So that's my yeah. example. I just thought of another one that is excellent um, and also makes me a little bit sad. This is um, from Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging by oh, Louise Renison. Yeah. Louise Renison uh, died earlier this week, which was just truly devastating news um, to hear. I love her so much and I love her books. Um, and these are... This is from a YA series that she wrote, the Jordan Nicholson series, which if you haven't read and you enjoy YA, then I, I can't recommend them to you enough. <laughs> <clears throat> and they are comedic. Um, and we haven't really done 
anything overtly comedic yet. So this one um, is pretty great. Um, the stories, the conceit of the books are that they are Georgia's diaries. So she's writing mm-hmm. in them um, as though they're her diaries. And this is from Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging. There are six things very wrong with my life. One, I have one of those under-the-skin spots that will never come to a head but lurk in a red way for the next two years. Two, it is on my nose. Three, I have a three-year-old sister who may have peed somewhere in my room. Four, in 14 days the summer halls will be over and then it will be back to Stalag 14 and Oberfuhrer Frau Simpson and her bunch of sadistic teachers. Five, I am very ugly and need to go into an ugly home. Six, I went to a party dressed as a stuffed olive. (laughs) And I can't do that justice because they're British. The character, the the author is British and the character of George is British. And I thought about doing it in a British accent, but I haven't had enough vodka yet. And so I couldn't make it happen. But I love these books and they're just hilarious. And just the progression of that list and how you know, these are the things that are wrong with her life. And it's, you know, a very clear sense of who this young teenage girl is. In sort of a similar way, the adult version of this, of course, being Bridget Jones's right. diary. Um, and Bridget has a very funny, distinct voice as well. Um, and for a very long time in high school, a lot of my diary entries sounded like oh, Bridget's. Oh, absolutely. You know, the and this short, like she would always, you know, the one quirk that was that I picked up very quickly was V, good, yes, V bad instead of very. <laughs> I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, as we're talking, you know, as Kelly and I are discussing these books that we love, and we're we are calling out very specific things that we like about them. That you know, when. This kind of is more of a bigger, broader picture of writing. Um, But again, voice being one of those nebulous, undefinable aspects of writing itself and how it infuses and permeates every aspect of it. But what makes writing unique? What makes your story unique? Because I'm sure we have all read books that just seem like every other book out there that have done nothing new with the genre or the form or anything like that, that feel derivative. Um, And that's because there's nothing unique or distinct about, not nothing, I shouldn't say that, but there isn't enough that's unique or distinctive about that book. I think people sometimes... The whole thing about wanting to be different or unique, sometimes people... Mistake that for telling a story that's never been told before. That is absolutely impossible. You cannot do that. Every story has already been told. Where your voice comes in is how you're going to tell that story and how you're going to make it yours and how you're going to make it your own. So that that's, I feel like that's a good note to end the, the voice discussion on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can top that. Can you? <laughs> no, I think that's pretty good. All right, then. Well, so we can move on to our other segments. Um, so what have you been reading? What have I been reading? Um, well, today I read uh, The Majority of Winter Song by S.J. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I finally caved, you guys. It's the it's the project that it's J.J.'s book that's coming out that's being published, and I hadn't read it uh, ever before, and I kept swearing I was going to wait for publication, and I, I couldn't do it anymore. I caved. <laughs> So I'm almost done. I'm going to finish it tonight. Um, I'm very excited and I will refrain from saying too much um, because the book is not out yet, but um, I am loving it. It is actually completely wonderful um, and I am so, just so happy for you and so loving the book on its own. Even if we weren't friends, there are a million little things about it that I already just love and so I'm, I was gonna I'm say, reading that take everything she said with a grain of salt because we are friends no. <laughs> <laughs> we are friends we are friends but we're critique partners and we've been friends for a long time and I I would not gush about it just because you had written it I would not even mention that I was reading it if I didn't 
you know, genuinely feel that. True, because um, Kelly, Kelly I, I can, has definitely told me I've been wrong before. So <laughs> <laughs> I can, I am, I'm very, you know, tough love. <laughs> so that's just completely unsolicited. Um, I can't wait to finish it. I'm very excited. Um, and then I still have yet more um, books rolling in from the library right now. I don't even know how I'm going to read them all. I have so many books out right now. I'm not going to finish them all before they expire. Um, but the most recent thing that just came in was Salt to the Sea, uh, by Ruda. Is it Sepetis? Sepetis? I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't either. So please forgive me. I'm sure that, um, is incorrect, but it's out of ignorance. Um, but Salt to the Sea is the one that just came in. So I'm excited to get started on that. Awesome. What about you? What are you reading? I think I mentioned the last time that I am rereading Maria V. Snyder's books. Mm-hmm. Well, specifically her like study series, so Poison Study, Magic Study. I just finished Fire Study, and now I had thought to go straight to her newest books in the series, which would be, I think, Shadow Study and then Night Study. Um, but when I kind of started shadow study, I realized that she, in like the first couple of pages, she references events that happen in the, in the glass series. So now (laughs) I've gone back and started rereading those books because I was like, I have a vague memory of the events of the storm Mm -hmm. glass series, but I I was like, I'll just reread them just to refresh. So that will be six books of Maria V. Snyder's that I will have reread before starting new books by Maria V. Snyder. (laughs) Um, and also the, I'm reading, um, Bryony and Roses by T. Kingfisher. This is a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. And as we had mentioned before, or at least I had mentioned before in the Love Interest podcast, if there's like Beauty and the Beast anywhere in, uh-huh. in the description, I'm there. So I saw this in the description and I was like, I am there. So yeah, that that's what I'm reading right now. <laughs> Excellent. Is there any other media that you're into at the moment? Um, well, I am now officially all caught up on the Black Tapes and Tannis. Because uh, the new episodes just came out. Newest episodes just came out yesterday and today. I don't know how many of you guys listen to the Black Tapes or Tannis. But they are put out by the same production company, uh, Pacific Northwest Stories. That's what they call themselves. Pacific Northwest Stories. And, like, quote, in-universe, you know, the the Black Tapes is hosted by Alex Regan, who is one of the producers at Pacific Northwest Stories. Um, and her co-producer on the Black Tapes is Nick Silver. And then on Tannis, Nick is the host of that one. And on each of their podcasts, they are, you know, they are characters in each of these podcasts. They interview each other. They talk to each other. They do research for each other for both their respective podcasts. Yet, what bugs me is that there has not been crossover on these two. And especially as, like, I don't want to spoil anything for those of you guys who are are not caught up or plan to catch up or, or any of both of these podcasts, but they're, like, pretty big events that are happening in both of them uh, that I'm sort of like, but you guys work at the same place, the same company, the same studio. Why are you not referencing this? Like it, it pucks me just a little bit. Cause you know, they, cause they are like in character as them, as quote themselves appear on each other's shows. So I'm just like, um, Please to explain why there's no connection between these two universes. Because it does seem like they're two totally different stories existing on two different planes. So that kind of bugs me a teeny tiny bit. Um, I have subscribed to the No Sleep podcast. Um, This is a subreddit, if you guys are on Reddit at all. But it's a subreddit called No Sleep where Redditors will, like write their own short, scary stories. And I really like it. I think, as with any short stories, they can be hit or miss. But some of them are really genuinely very creepy, and I really like them. So the guy who runs the podcast kind of 
I think goes through the Reddit and finds the best stories and, and reads them like dramatic, reads them aloud to you. However, I've subscribed, but I have not started reading them yet or listening to them yet because my partner is working nights for the next two weeks. <laughs> and I, I don't think I, I don't think I have the courage to do it right now. <laughs> when I'm home alone for the next two weeks. So they're kind of on pause. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, nothing new in particular. Uh, yeah. So what about you? Nothing really new for me either. I was trying to think back um, since the last time I've recorded. I have not started Dawson's Creek. I know <laughs> I mentioned that I was thinking about maybe starting it. And I'm still on the fence, but um, I have not since started since the last podcast. Um I really haven't been watching too much of anything. I've been really busy, and so TV has kind of taken a backseat. And I guess TV is usually most of the other media that I consume. We don't go to movies because we have a small child, and going to the movies involves getting a babysitter. Um, so we never go to the movies. So if it's not on Netflix um, or Amazon Prime Video, then um, I'm not watching it, basically. Um and I haven't really watched too much new TV or anything like that. All the podcasts that I'm listening to right now are, you know, just the latest installments of my old favorites. Um, and mostly in my free time, I've been doing a lot of reading. Awesome. Yeah. So are you working on uh, professionally, creatively, personally? Yeah. Um, a bunch of things that just all kinds of sort of happened at once. Um, so... In February, I taught a class at the Loft Literary Center on publishing contracts, and it was really successful, and uh, the student evaluations were really positive. And so uh, the Loft actually contacted me today and asked me if I would um, teach the class again this summer. I had not submitted a proposal to the summer session because I figured they'd want some space um, before repeating a class back-to-back, so I was planning to sit out summer session and then resubmit my proposal for the fall. But, um, apparently the feedback was really great. And so they, um, asked me if I'd come back for the summer. So I'm going to do that again. So I have to start prepping for that all over again. Although I have some time, I don't think it will be until July. Um, so I have plenty of time to get that started, but I'll probably start working on that, um, to update it a little bit from the first time that I taught. And then, um, Other than that, I am working on my YA. I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and I have been really inspired to start working on it again. Sometimes when I read something that is really good or that really engages me, even if it's nothing at all like my work in progress, but if I just read something good. Um, I get really inspired to start working on my own projects again. And so, um, I've been reading a lot of things that I've enjoyed and I've kind of had that inspiration, um, kick back in. And I've also realized that I, that I have accidentally, I think, I don't think I intentionally did this, but somehow it happened, um, that I'm actually writing right now in first person present, (laughs) which I don't like (laughs) for all the reasons that we discussed earlier. Um, and my book is not the hunger games. And so I don't necessarily think that it's appropriate. Um, so I think I'm not going to go back to the beginning and read, do it all because that's just another excuse to not move forward, which I'm the champion of finding excuses to not move forward. So I'm just going to switch over POV from where I am now. (laughs) Well, what would you switch it to? This is my, this is the thing that I'm trying to think. I think it would still be first person, uh, but I think first person past. Hmm. I, I don't know. Like I have softened my stance over the years on first person present. Um, I, I wrote winter song and first person past with some exceptions. <laughs> um, <laughs> There are bits in, there are sections of Winter Song that are actually in present, first person present. And I did that consciously. Um, but I, I don't know. I think if you are writing in a specific point of view and it's just kind of coming naturally that way, I think 
there's something to that. And I think maybe that's just something you should be pursuing. Mm-hmm. There's one scene. And I think the reason that it came up is because of this specific scene that is kind of where I picked up writing when I just recently picked up this project again. Um, and that scene, I think intuitively makes sense in first person present. And so that's just how I continued to write the whole thing. But now I'm kind of in these much quieter parts of the plot and it, it, I I think it feels really self-conscious right now Mm. because there's no, there's not that, like the scene that it makes sense and it's like a really, there's a lot going on, but it's also really internal and immediate and like, you know, it's very intense and, and I think it makes sense in that place, but now my characters are just kind of sitting around in a room refusing to go anywhere because one of them's very stubborn <laughs> and it, it just, it just seems really mm-hmm. kind of like, Mleh. so yeah, so I don't know about that, but I'm feeling expi- inspired to get back to, um, writing more actively. You know, like I said, I've been like, you know, working on it, but you know, a couple hundred words there, a couple hundred words there. So I'm excited to start working on it in a more intentional way. Um, I guess we'll just have to see what happens and where it goes. Yeah. What about you? What are you working on right now? Um, lots of things. (laughs) Um, I do have some news on Winter Song that once I get the okay to share it, I will be sharing it with you guys on the podcast. Um, so I am waiting for my copy edits to come in. I did get my production schedules. My copy edits are supposed to come in later in March, um, and they're due by April. And so right now I'm kind of in this point where I've got like three different projects that I've written chunks of more or less varying lengths of kind of the beginning of and because I'm still kind of in that spec phase like there's I I could easily if I sat down and committed to any of them I can continue and finish writing all of them but it's kind of deciding what book I want to be published next (laughs) so um one of those options that I may be working on is a companion novel to Winter Song this is somewhat of a newer development, although I did start writing this companion. It was, you know, it wasn't bought. My publisher bought a single title for me. So, you know, this, but this was before I even sold and before I even went on, on submission. I, had, you know, kind of written a companion because I could see where the story was going to go. Although, you know, once they did buy my book and my editor and I really worked on making Winter Song a standalone. But now certain developments have come up that, potentially allowed for a companion novel to Winter Song. So obviously I was working my Beauty and the Beast project and, you know, my middle grade, which I still think about even if I'm not necessarily actively writing. It, You know, like many of the things that I work on, it kind of, like certain aspects of it will kind of continually pop up in my head and then I'll sort of let that percolate and file away. Um, so that's kind of where I am, sort of in the a crossroads between these sort of three projects and kind of waiting on and hearing to see which one I should really give my all to at the po- at this point. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I am, sort of in between these sorts of things. Nice. And that's all for this week. Next week, we will be doing our query critique episode. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, so am I. So you guys still have a week to submit that to us. So if you guys have your critiques and you want us to critique them, or not critiques, if you have your queries and you want us to critique them, go ahead, please send them to us. We can't guarantee that we'll get to every single one that we got. Um, we're going to pick five that we think sort of demonstrate a breadth of uh, genres and sort of different uh, concerns in each one so we're going to try and give you as broad of an overview as possible but uh, there's still a week open so definitely go ahead and send them in to us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com as always if you want more please subscribe via iTunes Stitcher, Podcast Pickle or your podcast provider of choice also if you like us please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast and we really appreciate it every time we get a new review yay it's like our little hearts get three times bigger (laughs) (laughs) 
If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishandcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones on Twitter or my website at SJJones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further comments, questions, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. I've lost my train of thought. Where was this going? (laughs) Bloopers! I know. Usually it's me whose brain just stops working. I was like, what was I thinking about? Oh.